there was a very strong desire to show that the UN can respond to the greatest global threat of our time. This will be an absolutely critical moment for us to take stock of where we are and an opportunity for us to redouble efforts. We need to close these gaps over the course of the coming years. We need to remain hopeful. Not blind optimism, but we need to remain hopeful. This is The Lid Is On with me, Connor Lennon. Now, it's been almost two weeks since the end of the COP27 UN Climate Conference, and the UN team is now back in New York, apart from Laura, who's taking a well-earned break. If you were following our daily podcast during COP, you'll remember that we were unable to discuss the outcome of the conference before we left Egypt because, well, it overran and I was on a plane when the gavel finally came down on the Sunday morning. And if you remember, I did give a potted summing up on my return from my flat, uh, still jet-lagged, but I wanted to get some more context from someone who knows a lot more than me about the subject. So I'm delighted to welcome back the UN Secretary General's Special Advisor on Climate Change and, I'd like to say, friend of the podcast, Selwyn Hart. Hi, Selwyn. Hi, Connor. Nice uh, to see you, my good friend. Good to see you, too. Yeah. And glad you made it back. You were OK. Uh, you, you did hang around until the very end, didn't you? You stuck it out. Until the bitter end <laughs> on Sunday morning. <laughs> and then uh, how was your flight back? Um, it was fine, um, but... Really, we had this feeling of of satisfaction um, over um, certain parts of the outcome. We still have lots of homework to do. We're not there yet in terms of solving the climate crisis by any measure. But at the same time, um, some very useful progress was made in Sharm El Sheikh. I mean, when I left, there was still some uncertainty about whether there'd actually be an outcome. There's a lot of pessimism. But before the, the final uh, plenary, was that how you were feeling or were you positive you'd get there? No, I, I, honestly, um, I always felt that there would be an outcome. It's, <laughs> you know, I can say that now um, um, after the adoption of the Sharm el-Sheikh implementation plan. But there was a very strong desire on the part of all parties to show that multilateralism and the UN can respond to the greatest global threat and challenge of our time. And we also had a court president um, in the shape of e Egypt that um, really pushed all sides um, to agree on an outcome that built on the Glasgow Climate Pact, that built on COP26. And, you know, I believe that we were able to achieve that. Uh, maybe it's worth pointing out, reiterating that this is a consensus decision. Practically every country in the world has to agree to this outcome document, which is extraordinary. Uh, what difference can a Secretary General, a senior UN official, actually make in this? Well, <laughs> the Secretary General was extremely... Um, his, his role was extremely impactful. He, you know, well ahead of the COP, he established agreeing on a comprehensive and ambitious outcome on loss and damage, that that was a litmus test for success. He called for ambition on all three pillars of the Paris Agreement. Um, over the course of this year, he has pushed for accelerating the deployment of renewables. He has been, at times, the lone voice calling for overhaul of the global financial inf um, architecture and an overhaul of the practices and policies of the multilateral development banks. And when you look at the outcome at COP 
27, for the very first time, you have extremely strong language on renewables, on accelerating the deployment of renewables. You have a very strong call from parties to the framework convention, to the shareholders of the multilateral development banks to overhaul the policies and practices of the MDBs. And you also have this massive and historic step to create this loss and damage fund. Yeah, now on that, so loss and damage countries, some countries, including your nation, have been calling this for, what, three decades, saying there has to be a fund for loss and damage as a result of man-made climate change. It's always been pushed back by other countries. What made the difference this time? What changed? Well, I, 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 th I think this fact that we're seeing these massive climate impacts all over the world, you know, a few weeks before the COP, we had the catastrophic events in Pakistan, for example, and you're seeing impacts on a scale that we have not seen before. And these impacts are obviously linked to climate change. And there's a very clear recognition that there are limits to adaptation. Of course, we need to adapt to climate impacts. We need to reduce emissions to avert further loss and damage. But we know that adaptation has its limits and we need to take this issue of loss and damage seriously. And, um, you know, it's been 30 years. It's been 30 years, three decades of advocacy by countries on the front lines of the climate crisis, advocacy by members of civil society, and parties agreed in Sharm to take this historic step. Now it's the first step. Yeah, I was going to say, the battle's <laughs> not over yet, is it's it? So the details have been pushed down yeah. the road. What, what comes next? Well, um, what com comes next is that um, a small group, a subset of countries, 24 countries, will sit around the table and design this new fund and operationalize it by COP28. So over the course of the next year or so, there's going to be an intensive process um, to operationalize this, to design and operationalize this new fund. They will need to identify potential sources. Um, it's going to be a very difficult task, but that first hurdle has been overcome. Right, so the point is, uh, no matter how it turns out, the process has begun it, and there's no going back. Some kind of fund will take place at some point. Yes, yes, and what is also fantastic about the decision is that in addition to creating this new fund, um, there is going to be a global perspective on um, of how many of the existing institutions involved in providing climate humanitarian and development finance, how they can enhance their role in providing finance for loss and damage. So in addition to operationalizing and designing this new fund, there's also going to be, um, in parallel, a global look at how loss and damage finance in general through existing channels um, will be scaled up. Okay, so clear progress on loss and damage. You mentioned some of the other you said the pillars of the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, that breakthrough agreement. So let's talk a bit about those, um, starting with emissions reduction and keeping the global temperature rise to no more than 1.5 degrees. Now, 
it seemed that we didn't make too much progress, but there were fears that actually there would actually be some backsliding on those issues. So where are we with those? Of course, we all had fears that we, going into COP27 as a result of the war in Ukraine and what we've seen in terms of countries um, supporting new fossil fuel infrastructure, that there was a temptation for some of these countries to backslide on the commitments that, that they've made. In Sharm el-Sheikh, the outcomes clearly protected the 1.5 degree temperature limit as the global benchmark for ambition. There was no backsliding from Glasgow. Everything that was in Glasgow on 1.5, the exact language, the call for revisiting and updating NDCs, the call for accelerating um, emission reduction efforts, all of that was there. But we also had more. For the very first time in a COP decision, there was a clear call to accelerate the deployment of renewables. Connor, you know that the Secretary General has been very vocal on this. He yes. has been calling for a renewable energy <laughs> revolution. And everything that he said was in the outcome in Sharm el-Sheikh. Now, I haven't been around this subject as long as you. I'm a relative newbie in this. And I remember being shocked that the words fossil fuels had never been in an outcome document before last year. And it's equally surprising that renewables have not figured. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, it's been 30 years since we've had this convention. Of course, th there are competing interests. There are the oil and gas producing um, nations who've, and fossil fuel producing nations who've not always been the most progressive on many of these issues. But the fact that in the Sharm el-Sheikh implementation plan, we have very clear references to renewables, which captures the global consensus that first to get out of this climate crisis, we need to rapidly deploy renewable energies. Now, in the outcome as well, there was a very clear recognition that developing countries face special challenges as it relates to the rapid deployment of renewables, one of which is the cost of capital, something that the Secretary General repeatedly has made reference to, and this was also referenced in the outcome. For developing countries, the cost of capital is at times seven times higher than it is for developed countries. So renewable energy is very different from the traditional fossil fuel um, energy sources. For renewable energy, the cost, the cost of making this investment is upfront. 80% of the cost of an investment in renewable energy is upfront cost. You have to purchase the solar panels or you have to purchase the infrastructure for wind you have to purchase upfront the battery storage technologies that allows you to address issues of variability. So 80% of the cost is upfront. You don't have to buy the fuel, the sun, the wind, it's all free. But that upfront cost really is the biggest obstacle. So because many of the developing countries are not investment grade economies, it means, and they are misplaced perceptions of risk. 
it means that a country like the U.S., if you're making an investment in renewable energy, the cost of capital is probably 2 to 4%. But a country like Pakistan or Nigeria, that's more than 20%. The cost of capital, the cost... Which is just not viable for them. Which is, in many instances, it is not viable. The technology is cheaper than fossil fuels, but the cost that a country faces in terms of making that, ev making that investment, whether it's debt or equity, is significantly higher, seven times higher. And this represents one of the biggest obstacles. And this was recognized as an obstacle in the Sharm el-Sheikh implementation plan that needs to be addressed if developing countries really are to accelerate the deployment of renewable energy. Right, so again, devil's in the detail, and I guess the details will be worked out further down the road, but we actually have that in a document as an, as an aim, as a real target. As a real target, and, 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 and something that all of finance, public, private, MDB finance needs to work towards to solve, because we're, 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 we're really not going to crack this, this, this nut of, 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 of how to accelerate the deployment of renewable energy if we don't address the cost of capital issue right. for the developing world. MDB being multi, multilateral development. Multilateral development. Right. Sorry for using an acronym, Connor. No, it's very hard not to get technical <laughs> when it comes to finance. Yeah. Um, let's turn a bit now to uh, the, the tone. And I'm thinking of Simon Steele, mm -hmm. who you know well, the new head of UN Climate Change or UNFCCC, which organizes these conferences. I found his tone very bullish. He was... Um, he was saying he was going to hold people to account for the commitments that they make. Does that signal a new attitude on the part of the UN towards climate action? Well, um, it, it definitely does. Um, one of the really important in initiatives that was launched at, the, um, at COP27 was the Secretary General's report on the net zero commitments of non-state actors. Um, last year at COP26, you had this proliferation of announcements from financial institutions, from corporates, etc., who committed to net zero. But we also heard in parallel concerns that many of these pledges and commitments were not real. Right, this is the greenwashing problem. This is the greenwashing, yeah, yeah. Call, call the greenwashing call, but um, but 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 uh, that was a concern, right. and as a result of that, the Secretary General announced at COP26 that he would create, establish an expert group, a high-level expert group, um, to look at how to ensure that the measurement, reporting, and verification of commitments from non-state actors was real. Um, this group was formed o over the course of, um, of the last year under the leadership of Catherine McKenna, um, who former is the former environment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we, it, uh, it, it, it was a very diverse group. Mm. Um, half the members were from, half of the members, more than half were from developing countries. We, we had about four members from Africa, for example. Um, and half of the membership, it was male female so 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 there was gender balance geographical balance and they delivered 10 really important and 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 and, and historic recommendations on how to strengthen 
the processes related to setting that zero commitments, the processes related to measuring them and verifying them. And when this report was launched at COP27, the Secretary General, he tasked Simon and his team really to come up with an action plan um, around how to ensure that there could be a continuous um, system of verifying these commitments from non-state actors. And in addition, we've moved from negotiating. Yes, there will still be negotiations at every COP, but we've now moved into an implementation mode. And I, I think Simon's statement at the end was extremely powerful, really signaled the shift from simply managing a negotiating process to managing um, a more dynamic implementation process. Right, and he also indicated that he wanted to move away from us just thinking about, you know, from COP to COP, but there to be many points along the way. Yeah. The reality is that we have less than a decade really to solve this challenge. So every day counts, every hour counts, every week, every month counts. So it's, it's COPs really will become more of you, you know, that major moment every year where everyone checks in. But a lot of what needs to be done, in fact, most of what needs to be done, needs to happen outside of the formal negotiating process. Of course, recognizing that the UNFCCCC will always be the place where everyone needs to check in on an annual basis. Well, let's talk a bit about the next time we check in because it's going to be a, I guess they're all big years, but next year, it's a stock take. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean, and what do you expect to happen between now and then? Well, um, it's going to be the first stock take, uh, and this moment of stock taking was a really important um, addition to the Paris Agreement. Um, you know, taking off my UN hat, it, 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 it really is to represent that moment where um, all stakeholders, governments, private sector, civil society, financial institutions really need to take stock of where we are in closing all of the gaps, including the massive emissions gap, and use it as a moment really to recalibrate. The reality is that we are not on track, not on track to limit global temperature rise to 1.5. So there really has to be a strong focus on what needs to be done ov over the course of the next few years to ensure that we are able to meet this really critical goal. It also represents a moment for us to take stock on the other pillars of the Paris Agreement. Last year in Glasgow, developed countries committed to double their adaptation finance. At COP27, it still was not clear. Um, the Secretary General have called for a plan, um, a plan or a roadmap from developed countries on doubling their adaptation finance. That did not materialize um, at COP27. A report is to be prepared by one of the bodies in, um, in the convention, but it would have been better really if there was um, uh, you know, much greater transparency on the doubling of adaptation finance from the developed countries, because we know 
that the adaptation needs of the developing world continues to grow. And adaptation at the end of the day is about saving lives and protecting livelihoods. So this stock taking moment next year will be an absolutely critical moment for us to take stock of where we are on all of the pillars of the Paris Agreement and an opportunity for us to redouble efforts to meet all of the goals that we've set. We need to close these gaps um, over the course of the coming years. Now, you and I, we're both in the UN system. You're working on this every day. I'm, I'm working on this quite a lot. But yeah. for someone listening to this, watching this, who's not involved, and, but is very concerned about climate change, they're seeing the dire reports, the scientific reports that come out. What do you say to them? How, how should they stay positive uh, against this, this onslaught of negative news? We have... We need to remain hopeful. Not blind optimism, but we need to remain hopeful. A few months ago, no one would have thought that we would have a decision at the COP to create a loss and damage fund. Right? We need to remain hopeful. And, 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 and folks should not feel powerless. Um, they're voters, they're consumers, they're investors. Right? Um, they need to use their vote their ability to influence the decisions that um, policymakers um, at the local, state and federal levels in their respective countries take. You know, get involved in climate advocacy, right? Um, get involved in climate advocacy. They're also consumers, right? Um, ensure that the companies and products that you support are truly making um, the right decisions um, on climate. Vote with also, your wallet. Yeah, for Vote with your wallet. Vote with your wallet. And, and, and they're also investors as well. And it's absolutely crucial that they place their money where their values are. Mm. Right? So, um, yeah, um, folks should not feel helpless. We're not there yet. It's, it's going to be extremely difficult. But we need all hands on deck. And... We need everyone to be optimistic that we can solve this crisis. Well, lots to think about there. And if you do want to find out more, you can go to the United Nations Climate Action page. Just simply Google United Nations Climate Action. There's lots of information about advocacy there, as, as Selwyn was saying. So, uh, well, we will carry on this conversation. I'm sure we'll be speaking many times throughout the year and in the lead up to the next COP. Selwyn Hart, thank you very much for being with us on this episode of The Lid Is On. Connor, thank you so much. It's always, you know, it's definitely been a pleasure. Thank you for bringing attention to this really important challenge and also the important work that the Secretary General has been doing to not only raise global awareness, but to push countries, big, small, medium-sized, rich and poor, towards the highest levels of ambition. We'll be talking about this subject many times over the coming months. Thanks for being with us, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Please, if you haven't already, like and subscribe. We'll be back next Friday.